welcome to the final official episode of Protecting Patients, Preventing Harm. My name is Jasmine Saluja, and this is the sixth episode of my capstone podcast for my project, Protect and Prevent, on Medical Malpractice. With me today, I have two very special guests, Dr. Jennifer Gwyther and Mr. Kieran Murphy, along with some upper school students from St. Paul's. Dr. Gwyther, SPSG class of 2000, graduated from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and completed a combined residency in emergency medicine and pediatrics in 2013. Since then, she has been an assistant professor working in both the adult and pediatric emergency departments at the University of Maryland, while being program director for the combined residency program. She is also extremely or extensively involved in EMS, serving as deputy medical director for Baltimore County Fire Department, assistant medical director for the Baltimore County Fire Department, and associate region three medical director for the Maryland Institute of Emergency Medical Service Systems. Next, Gary Murphy is an associate attorney at Ways Wallstein. LLC with the national practice focused on representing victims of birth injuries and neonatal injuries. He is licensed and admitted to practice law in Maryland, Pennsylvania, the District of Columbia, the U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland, and the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. He has been admitted to practice pro vice in Illinois, Georgia as well. He is responsible for the day-to-day management of handling numerous cases that have reported recovered and are worth millions of dollars. Kieran has extensive courtroom experience and has handled trials and oral arguments before trial and appellate courts as sole counsel numerous times throughout his career. Despite being a young attorney, Kieran is regularly commended by judges, magistrates, and opposing attorneys for his courtroom demeanor, his trial presentation, his preparation, and his cross-examination skills. Kieran has been selected by his peers as a super lawyer's rising star for the his litigation skills and trial practice as one of the national trial courts, top 40 under 40 trial attorneys. Throughout his career, Kieran has been asked by judges and fellow attorneys to counsel and present on issues related to rules of civil procedure and the rules of evidence. Today's episode will cover Dr. Gwyther and Mr. Murphy's background in their careers, their perspectives on medical malpractice, and some advice on what we can do to protect ourselves. Before we get started, I wanted to thank you both for being a part of this. I'm confident that we can learn from you both and also make a positive impact on our communities. Thank you for all the hard work you have done and the work you are doing now to help spread awareness about this epidemic. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, thank you for coming. Alrighty, so the way we're going to do this is I'm going to ask you both a few general questions and you both can jump in at any time. And then I have some specific questions for you, Dr. Weather, first and then Mr. Murphy. Alrighty, first question. Why do you think medical malpractice occurs? You guys can jump in. Doctor, I'll let you go first. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest things is misunderstanding and miscommunication. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody goes into medicine with the intent of harming someone or having a bad outcome, right? That's the yeah. worst day is when you go in and your colleague's like, guess what happened to that patient you signed out to me? That's like your anxiety shoots up, mm-hmm. right? So I think if you can communicate in words that the patient can understand, and arrange appropriate follow-up, and I think that communication is clear, there's a much less risk of litigation. I agree with what the doctor said. Um, I also think that one thing that I have noticed is, I think that our current model of healthcare insurance reimbursement creates perverse incentives to get patients in and out in a very quick fashion. And I find that that system puts the healthcare professionals themselves, the doctors, the nurses, nurse practitioners, in positions that they probably would not want to be in to make sure they're optimizing patient care. And that's things that are outside the control of the healthcare professionals themselves. 
and are usually being dictated by the insurance carriers and or the healthcare system that they work for. So I think that's a big driver. Another thing that sort of piggybacks off of what the doctor said is, I do think, and I think this is a problem that runs in all professional fields, whether it's medicine or the practice of law like I'm in or accounting, I think that in certain professional fields, it's easy for a sense of apathy to creep in. And this is something I've seen over my limited professional career myself is it's easy to be exposed to a certain bad event or bad situation enough times to get so used to it that it becomes sort of commonplace or banal and to sort of treat it like they're all the same and to not take the time to make sure that you're focusing in on the individual patient or the individual client and their specific needs. Um, and the last thing is, I just want to echo again what the doctor said, I also think that a lot of it comes from a lack of communication, either from the patient to their healthcare professional or between healthcare professionals. A lot of times it's just about a lack of awareness of certain clinical information that the doctor or the nurse in a given situation would have no reason to know about, but for the patient or one of their fellow providers telling them they have that piece of information. Do you think it affects certain people more than others in certain populations that you know so you certainly have what's considered more at-risk population, which are typically more impoverished. There's certainly a lot of discussion about race-based medicine right now. So some great examples. We actually held a journal club last week for our EM Feeds residents looking at racial disparities amongst treatment and so we reviewed the studies. But one of the ones that really stood out to me was they looked at a bunch of kids who got diagnosed with appendicitis, and they looked at kind of what the delay in care was. And certainly in some ages, especially the toddler age range where appendicitis is super, super rare, they typically will take multiple visits to diagnose. And that's across the board, across races. But how many kids took two or three visits to get diagnosed when they were African-American or Hispanic versus your white population? And there was a significant delay uh, of one or two visits in that population. So we're starting to see it reflected in the literature, which is hopefully what a lot of us use uh, to practice and kind of um, figure out the ways that we're going to treat people. And now we have evidence to say, you know, we really need to pay more attention in this in this population. Yeah, and I agree with what the doctor said. I, I find that most patients or the subset of our society who suffer medical malpractice or medical malocurrence the most are usually people who are on some form of public assistance. It's usually people who are already in a tough spot in life and don't have access to the same resources that most of the people in this room have access to. And that creates situations that lead to poor health conditions and or a lack of awareness of what they should be looking for, what they should be doing when they're in a healthcare setting. Another subgroup that I think is increasingly becoming more at risk for medical malpractice or medical occurrence are people who live in rural areas of our country. There's a growing phenomena of healthcare deserts. Uh, there are less smaller hospitals than there used to be. And it's more common that you hear about people who need to travel two, three, four hours to get to the nearest hospital or emergency care facility. And that's a problem as well. The question is, you know, what's driving that? There are a lot of things that drive that, like any problem in our society. And a lot of the things are one, that as there's been sort of a brain drain of certain parts of our uh, country, people fleeing more to the coasts, to the cities, or to the southern part of our country, those areas have growing and expanding healthcare systems, larger hospital systems, but other parts of the country, particularly the Midwest, parts of the Pacific Northwest, 
they have fewer and fewer facilities than they used to. And that creates this unfortunate event that those members of our society also are becoming more and more subject to medical malpractice, medical malrecurrence, because they just don't have the same access to healthcare they would otherwise. And by the time they get to a healthcare facility, they're already in pretty dire straits. Do you think that medical malpractice occurs in more in one specific area of medicine than others, or is it pretty like dispersed between the different healthcare fields that we have? <laughs> From an emergency medicine and <laughs> pediatric perspective, our field actually has a fairly high yeah. um, rate of malpractice uh, accusations, for lack of a better word, which is probably not the word that you use, <laughs> but <laughs> from our perspective. Uh, so the quote that they teach us in residency is about a third of categorical emergency medicine physicians will be named in some sort of lawsuit. Mm -hmm. The majority of them, of course, are going to be dropped. Uh, but the anxiety of facing that statistic uh, is, is taught in a lot of residencies and reiterated in multiple, multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Again, I agree with the doctor. The three areas that I see the most commonly are emergency medicine, surgical practices. I see them particularly neurosurgery, surgical practices that are more uh, high risk. And because I do obstetrical malpractice, or I have a heavy focus on that, obstetrical malpractice is also very well known to be an area that suffers more, as the doctor said, more medical malpractice accusations. Um, I think that those three areas suffer the most in terms of uh, being the subject of medical malpractice because those are three of the highest risk areas of healthcare. And we'll probably get into this more in a little bit, but one thing that I've come to learn as an attorney is the more high risk a practice is, both inside or outside the medical field, the more likely it is to be particularly subject to litigation because there is such a high risk of adverse outcome. And something I'm sure the doctor's aware of is we as attorneys, not all attorneys, but some of us try to distinguish between medical malpractice where someone is injured because of an act or omission of a medical provider versus medical malocurrence, which is someone comes to a facility, they suffer an adverse outcome, but it has nothing to do with the care they received. They were just already in a bad spot or it was something no one could have predicted, right? So I think that the areas that suffer the most of both are the same. It's those high risk situations where providers are not getting access to the full amount of information they need, either from the patient or their fellow providers, or because of the high risk nature of it, there's just a higher rate of malocurrence, which leads to the likelihood that some doctors are going to be sued for malocurrence, even if they did nothing wrong. Yeah. Dr. Weather, you have a lot of involvement in the EMS system. Can you talk a little bit about what malpractice or negligence looks like in the emergency medical system with like EMTs and paramedics and that kind of pre-hospital care? So a lot of that is going to depend on how the system is set up uh, in particular. So. Certainly, if you look at Maryland, we are a very unique EMS system, and each county has a different setup in terms of volunteer versus career, um, and a lot of them, especially when they're all career, are governed by kind of Baltimore City. They do all have malpractice insurance that goes with them, at, and typically sponsored through the city, and they all have medical directors that are responsible for their certification, um, for what they do. We have a very robust QA system. There's always room for improvement. Uh, but when we see kind of little things that could be better, or let's make this a little tighter, let's work on our documentation. We know you provided excellent care, but this paper that will eventually go to a court does not support the excellent care that you provided. Uh, let's work on how to do it that direction. So. 
I'm hopeful enough to find somebody who wants to sue the EMS providers <laughs> in any of the jurisdictions I that I work. <laughs> All right, Dr. Rather, we're going to jump into some specific questions for you now. Can you give some background on your career? What pushed you in the direction of becoming a physician? Your education processes, current position, and practices. So once I gave up the dream of being a ballerina, which was at that point, no, I really did. I was not a good dancer, though. Um, I wanted to be a neonatologist when I was like six or seven. My parents have no clue where that came from. <laughs> there is one other doctor remotely in my family. And other than that, no one else is in medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of continued that. I came to St. Paul's in ninth grade. Right. A wonderful place to go. Um, and for my senior project, I actually, through contacts with St. Paul's, was able to do a three-week NICU rotation down at University of Maryland, where, oddly enough, some of the same people are still there. Years ago. Um, and it was an awesome experience, and I continue to love it. When I went off to college, I got into EMS, and then, of course, you have EMS, you have children. Typically, they do not go together, although they really do. Um, once I got into med school, I was fortunate enough to be put kind of in a big brother, big sister type shadowing program with both our peds interest group and our EM interest group. And I wound up getting combined residents, so EM and peds in both groups, which exposed me to the combined program. Yeah. And then I was super interested in that. So when I graduated, I applied to that residency, which is five years. Mm -hmm. um, throughout all that, I stayed very active in the county volunteer system doing kind of pretty much EMS um, and, well, still do it, but for that volunteer system um, all through residency and found that I could combine my goal of loving adult emergency medicine, pediatric emergency medicine, and I had some great mentors who were able to get me more involved in EMS leadership and kind of wound up putting together all three jobs. Wow. That really worked out. That's great because you're now able to follow your passions and do something you love while it is. Um, and I love each particular part. Sometimes they're a little bit overwhelming, but they all they all work out and work together nicely. That's good to hear. As a doctor, what are some things that you do to avoid medical malpractice? So I think there's two areas. One is documentation. So I'm a little bit obsessive about what I write and what I document. And in the world of EMRs, trying to make sure you avoid your quick boxes, so saying that you know, your physical, your extremity exam is normal when the patient has an amputation, yeah. for example, or when the patient has Down syndrome, you're not going to put that their face is normal, right? You're going to put what their face actually looks like. Um, so avoiding things like that so that you know that you're accurate. You also have kind of a certain standard when you go into a patient's room. So for example, for a patient with back pain, you always want to go in and have the patient completely disrobed, preferably before you go into the room because it saves a little bit of time um, so that you can do a full neurologic exam, take a look at all their back. So you make that standard of practice um, so that even if you go in and the patient's fully clothed, your nurse knows like, oh, hey, can you put a, you know, put a gown on and the doctor will be in to see you. The other part is communication. So even when I have a patient who comes in who I don't, they have vomiting and diarrhea, it's probably a virus. Do I know it's not one of the viruses that is um, going to lead to dehydration and then acute kidney injury? I don't know that. Uh, but I know at this point in time, they're safe for discharge. So explaining the patient's symptoms, you know, if they had lab work that came back, what exactly that means, what to look out for, 
and to make sure that I'm on their level of understanding. So if I start throwing around all of my wonderful medical yes. words that yes. I might use with my residents, my patients might not, they may or may not understand um, that terminology and making sure I review, okay, this is when you need to see your doctor. If you can't see your doctor, this is when you need to come back to me and making sure that kind of all of their questions are answered. Can I just jump in to yeah. make a comment? So to uh, the doctor's point, I, when we look at these cases, the first thing we look at is the records, right? So before there's even a decision whether or not there's a case to pursue, we look at the records. And we have to decide in discussions with expert witnesses who are themselves doctors, whether or not there's been any violation of the standard of care. And one of the things that stands out or stood out to me the most as a young attorney doing this type of work was how little documentation certain providers put in. And I have found, I'm not saying this always is true, but the more thorough the documentation, the more timely the documentation, the more likely that there isn't going to be something to pursue. I mean, if something bad happens, something bad happens. But I think that's an important point that the doctor made is having physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, whoever the healthcare provider may be, documenting in real time that they've taken the time to consider the patient's full clinical picture and that they've counseled the patient on those things. Because one thing I've noticed is it's very rare that we have uh, clients come to us and say, oh, this doctor was wonderful and really answered all my questions and explained things to me in an understandable way. Usually patients feel like they were left in the dark by the doctor. Yeah. Something bad happened, and then when something bad happened, the doctor said, well, it was everything else except it. So I also think it's an important piece of advice that was just given that it's important to take the time to explain everything to your patient, or like I said, in the case of a lawyer, to your client, very thoroughly to make sure they understand it. Because I think most people, if they appreciate that you tried your best and you show them that you did the work to do your best, they're going to recognize that sometimes bad things happen. It's where people feel like they're being pushed through and they're not really having their questions answered and they get their medical records and their medical records are kind of vague. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that I think the doctor's points are very well taken from someone on the other side of that. Have you come across any medical malpractice cases at the practice you worked at? If so, tell them about your like, lab to talk about or comfortable to share. Um, so fortunately, no one has found me yet from that <laughs> perspective. Um, but certainly, I've had conversations with risk management in the past, typically when there's a bad outcome. Uh, and they are the nicest people in the world. I love our risk management department. They're always available um, to do. But I always take lessons out of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And if there was a loophole in my documentation, this may be why I am very particular about the documentation that I like to do. Um, but vital signs, that was one lesson that I learned. Um, and my residents know no one can go with red vital signs, an unexplained red vital sign. And we, but even the interns now, they come up to me, they're like, look, there's no red vitals. It's like, perfect, the kid can go home. Um, but it it kind of, when risk management sends you an email, it's like, hey, when you wake up, could you give me a call? That anxiety level that you yeah. feel is is horrible, and you never want to feel that way again. And, and most of the time, they're just trying to put together kind of the pieces of the chart, because um, they may or may not be as familiar with, you know, pediatric care as somebody else or, or adult care. Um, but fortunately, most of the time, it revolves around documentation and communication. <laughs> so it seems like your risk management team has a little bit to play with managing like all the documentation and like kind of preventing any possible cases that could arise. What are some other standards that your practice takes to train its staff to 
like in this general area of healthcare and providing them um, healthcare? So from a residency perspective, our residency program, especially on the EM side, is very MedMal focused. Um, so we have at least once a month, even last Wednesday, we had our head of pediatric risk management uh, come in and give a lecture focused on documentation. Um, but they are constantly kind of bringing it to the attention, how can we improve? Um, we are fortunate enough where I train to have a lot of national and international speakers and they are always looking to teach the residents like a case from, hey, this person from Australia sent me this, you know, EKG and was wondering, you know, what you guys thought of it. Did he miss something and go over? So all those learning points all go into how am I going to be a better doctor? How am I going to improve myself? How am I going to take better care of my patients so that no one calls me and sends me an email? Yeah. What do you think is the greatest challenge that doctors face around this issue? Do you think these are similar to what you face as an EM physician? So it's a little bit of a tough question. Um, I think if, if you can make the patient happy and you are comfortable with the care that you provided and the patient is comfortable with the care that you provided, I think you're good. Like there, there, have been, there have been studies in the EM literature that if your patient is happy, they, they're less likely to sue. Like if, that, if you have a really good rapport with the family, if you're keeping them up to date, then great. They under, most people understand that, yes, you are not magical. Something bad can happen you know, down the line. And a lot of the things that they come in to see us for in the emergency department, you can't necessarily fix. Like if they come in for high blood pressure, right, that predisposes you to strokes, it predisposes you to heart attacks. And you can try to modify it for that, you know, short time while you're in there. You can give them great anticipatory guidance to go and follow up with their primary care doctor, check their blood pressure at home, keep a diary, eat low soft foods, all the things. And they may still have a stroke because all their family had strokes in their 50s, and that's the pathway they're down, and you try to modify it. But if you explain that to them, they, the patient typically, as long as they understand it and can comprehend it, they comprehend the risk factors, they're normally on board with you. And then everybody's happy. You're happy. The patient's happy. Your nurse who discharges them is happy. It's great. What is one piece of advice you would give to citizens that we could use to keep ourselves safe in a healthcare setting? So I think one of the biggest things is to ask questions and don't be afraid to tell them, tell whoever is taking care of you that one piece of information that you might be embarrassed about or scared about. Um, a lot of times people are not necessarily embarrassed to tell you, but they're scared that if I tell you, then it means it's really wrong with me and something bad's gonna happen. And the physician can only act on kind of what they're physically seeing and what you tell them. So if they say, oh, have you had a headache? And you say, no, but yesterday I had the worst headache of my life. That's super important information and we'll go into the differential. If you don't tell us that piece of information from yesterday, our differential is going to be totally different and our workup is going to be totally different. Uh, and we may miss something big, which nobody wants to do. Thank you so much for sharing that. Can you give some background on your career? What pushed you in the direction of becoming a malpractice lawyer? Your education process, your position, and thoughts. So my first legal job was when I was in college, I interned at a firm that did 
like pharmaceutical products liability. And it was a nice place to work. Everyone was very friendly. But I noticed that all of the lawyers just kind of sat at their desk all day and it felt a little bit like an assembly line. So I incorrectly assumed, well, that's just what litigation is like. That's what it's like being a trial lawyer. Everyone goes through the motions, but everyone knows the outcome and every case resolves and there's not really any more civil jury trials, right? And then I went to law school thinking, well, I'll probably just do transactional work. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. So I started doing a lot of transactional courses. I worked in the community development clinic where we helped uh, nonprofit organizations and small businesses get free legal services. We provide that legal service under the supervision of a borrowed attorney who specialized in that stuff. And it was great. But at the same time, I interned for a different firm that did sort of small construction litigation disputes some commercial disputes between businesses. And I kind of fell in love with litigation again because I realized, okay, not everything is the same. That was probably a function of doing large-scale mass torts as opposed to doing individualized cases for people or businesses. And that kind of drove me in the direction of wanting to be a trial lawyer. And when I finished law school, I knew I wanted to clerk for a judge. That's what, if you want to be a litigator or a trial lawyer, you try to clerk for a judge, either an appellate judge or a trial judge, so you have the opportunity to basically get paid to watch people in court for a year and sort of learn all the you know uh, intricacies of what court, courtroom practice is like. So I did that for a year for a judge in circuit court for Prince George's County, which is in Southern Maryland outside of DC. And the judge who I clerked for, <clears throat> he was the judge who oversaw the complex civil cases. So he predominantly oversaw construction disputes, medical malpractice, lawsuits, uh, business breakups, things like that. And that drove me in the direction of wanting to do civil litigation and civil jury trials, as opposed to doing criminal or um, you know anything else, juvenile practice. Um, and after I clerked for Judge Davey, that's the judge I clerked for, I worked for three years at a small boutique firm that did high-end divorce litigation outside of DC, which was great because I got to be in court all the time, and I loved that but I realized that I wanted to do the complex civil stuff that I saw when I was clerking for the judge. And after about three years of that, I transitioned into doing medical malpractice litigation at the firm I'm at now. Um, and that's sort of what drove me to do it. It's, it's very rewarding to be able to represent people who've been through a very difficult situation, who don't really know what happened to them, and are looking for guidance from someone that can help them navigate the process. So that's kind of what drove me in that direction. Why do you think healthcare professionals get sued so often? Are they false claims? So I think something that we touched on earlier is the fact that there are certainly lawsuits that are filed in every subset of litigation that are false claims or are really trying to make something out of what is a malocurrence. Again, whether that's medical malocurrence or construction malocurrence or whatever it may be, those things do occur. Most of those claims I have found in my professional career get disposed of before the case ever gets to a jury, right? Either through a motion for summary judgment because the facts are not really disputed and there is insufficient evidence to support a claim against the doctor, or because the expert testimony in favor of the patient is not considered scientifically sound and those experts are precluded from testifying and then you can't get to the jury. So I found that a lot of cases that are what you refer to as false claims, often get disposed of before there's ever a trial, right? There's still a process that has to happen to get there, um, but those are usually uh, disposed of in one way or another. Um, but I do think that 
Again, one of the reasons there are so many claims against healthcare providers is because it is a high-risk situation, right? So there's a reason that we also have a lot of lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies, right? When you're putting chemicals that are artificially manufactured and combined in a plant into a person's body after a very lengthy process, if things go wrong or if you, you know, maybe turn a blind eye to certain data points, it, that's a very... Uh, that's a very bad outcome, right? We're talking about permanent disabilities, we're talking about death, we're talking about things that warrant the pursuit of litigation. The same is true of why we see a lot of lawsuits around car accidents. If you're operating a vehicle, even at only 30 miles an hour, and you hit someone, that causes a lot of damage. It's easy for us because it's so commonplace in our society for people to be in car accidents to forget that, but that's also a high-risk activity. It's also why we don't see a lot of lawsuits over bicycle accidents, right? Or over tailors, right? Over a tailor messing up your suit. I mean, those are things that are very low-risk activities. It doesn't really make sense to pursue litigation over that. So I think that that's one of the reasons we see that. Again, it's less a function of, or maybe it's less a function of anything that is actually malpractice or negligence, and oftentimes it's a function of the fact these are high risk to begin with, and any little mistake can result in a very bad outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And because you're doing something like driving a car at 80 miles an hour, or you're operating on someone's brain, or you're putting together uh, potential medications for someone who has you know, liver disease, because those are things that entail a high-risk outcome, high-risk, high-reward, there's no room to be sloppy or imprecise, right? It's why, like the doctor said, you have to be thorough in your documentation, you have to be thorough in making sure you're gathering as much information as possible. If you were a lawyer defending the healthcare professionals, how would you approach the case to I don't think I would approach the cases differently because to me it's very important that, like I said before, I think that being a professional, you know, there are certain fields that are considered professional fields. So medicine, law, finance, accountants, things where you have to go and not only get uh, a certain level of education, but you have to be tested by boards that are overseen by the state, right? And I think that what I have found in my career working with people in all of those professional fields is that the people who do best at their Fields are people who are very enthusiastic about it, people who are detail-oriented, people who take the time to discuss with their clients or their patients what all the ramifications are and to really explain, make sure that the client or patient fully understands it. So the reason I say I probably wouldn't do anything differently is because I think I'd probably bring the same level of diligence and competence to, doing, uh, to representing healthcare professionals as well. I think the only difference would be that in doing that, I'm looking for different things, right? So when I represent patients, I'm looking for, was there any evidence of malpractice? If there is, sometimes there's malpractice and there's no harm as a result of that, right? You don't file a lawsuit, right? I mean, sometimes people make mistakes. You need to have, that there's a mistake made, that that caused an injury, and that the injury has a certain level of damages. And I think the only difference would be that if I were representing healthcare professionals, my role would be different. My job would be to look for, okay, how do I break that chain, right? A lot of defense attorneys that I work with refer to my burden is the person representing the patient as links in a chain, right? And their job is to break the links in the chain. Can I say, okay, if I as the defense attorney see, okay, there was a mistake here, I need to defend my client, who's the doctor, the nurse, the hospital. But this patient also had this comorbidity that more likely than not was the cause of the patient's death or the patient's brain injury. That's, that would be where my role would change, or I would approach it differently. I would be looking for ways to break the chain as opposed to ways to strengthen in your career as a lawyer, have you seen that malpractice cases have increased or decreased? What do you think is the cause of this? So I've only been a practicing attorney for about 10 years, a little under. So I probably haven't been practicing for long enough to see that. But 
because I do medical malpractice litigation, I regularly read medical journals. I think it's important for me to have as best an understanding of the medicine as I can as a layperson. I never pretend to be a doctor. Some lawyers try to do that. I don't do that. But I do think it's important. And I know that, I think it was in 2021, the Journal of the American Medical Association, it's abbreviated JAMA, they published an article where they talked about, they did a historic review of medical malpractice filings in the United States. And they found that over the past two decades, medical malpractice filings have actually decreased by something like 55%. So there are less lawsuits being filed, but the payouts or the settlements, the jury verdicts are significantly higher. And one reason, they talk about this in the article, but I think this is what I have found is that the cost of litigating these cases on both sides, both for the patient and for the healthcare system, are so high that unless there is a truly bad outcome, something that is going to be forever debilitating, something that is going to cause, uh, lead to a shortened life expectancy or death, unless there is a sufficient level of damage to the patient, most attorneys who represent patients like myself will often say, hey, there is evidence here that this nurse made this error during your emergency room visit, but you're doing okay now. There isn't really anything to pursue. I know that's not what you'd like to hear, but by the time we litigate the case with what the case is likely to settle for, a jury's likely to award, you're not going to get anything. So it's basically going to be my paying expert witnesses and case costs and my putting money in my firm's pocket and getting no benefit to you after you have to go through that process. So I think that part of what's happened is as the litigation field has kind of expanded, I think that there has been a decrease in those filings because people recognize that we're not going to file a lawsuit over every bad thing that happens. But when there are bad outcomes, it makes for a basis for someone to pursue litigation. And oftentimes, because we have come to, as our economy, as our society becomes more specialized, we have an understanding of the fact that someone with a traumatic brain injury requires a very specific level of care, just like someone with you know, end-stage kidney disease requires a very specific level of care. So I think that one of the reasons the payouts have become higher and the cases have become lower is we know that somebody who maybe suffers a brief infection or gets a sponge left in them, once they get over that initial sepsis and stuff, you know, there might be a claim to be made for their uh, period of some pain and suffering, but they're probably going to be okay in the long run as long as there wasn't any sort of, you know, uh, inflammatory response syndrome throughout their whole body, right? As long as the sepsis didn't take hold and really create any long-term effects. Whereas somebody who may suffer a very minor mistake in a neurosurgical procedure, you know, that person may end up suffering an injury that leads to them you know, requiring 24-7 supervision. That's really, and that costs a lot of money. So I think as we've become more specialized in the field of medicine, the field of law, I think it makes for the phenomena we're seeing of less and less cases being filed, but the ones that are being filed result in higher payouts. What is one piece of advice you would give to citizens that we can use to keep ourselves safe in a healthcare setting? So one thing that I recommend to everybody is I'm a very big believer in the idea that I like being inundated with information. I want as much information before I approach any situation as possible. So I always recommend to everybody that they research the provider they're going to see. Now, if you're going to go to an emergency room, Usually the most you can do is look up the Google reviews because you don't know what provider you're going to get, right? So the most you can do is look at the Google reviews, and those are usually not a good indicator because I think in a lot of situations you look at those and you see that most of them are going to be negative because people are just going to have negative interactions in an emergency room. But I have found that if you compare negative reviews, I mean, we know just as a general phenomenon that people don't usually leave good reviews for anything. So usually you're only going to see negative reviews for the most part. 
But what I've noticed is, and I found this to be accurate, is you know, you look at a group of negative reviews for hospital A versus hospital B, even just looking at those negative reviews, you can see it kind of does give you an indication of what's going on in the emergency room from a patient's perspective, right? So you read some and it's like, oh, well, you know, I was there for eight hours and there's nobody else there and the nurses were on break. That, that is indicative of maybe a, an emergency room. And again, this is something that I see usually in more rural uh, healthcare systems or places where you're not going to have the kind of uh, constant flow of patients and care and providers. But you see something like that, and that probably is accurate, that you're going to get a long wait time, that you might get, you know, people who are a little burned out, um, you know, versus seeing somewhere like University of Maryland, which is well known for their emergency services for their shock trauma unit. Um, I heard somebody say this once, and I think it's accurate, that one of the reasons we probably have, although we have a higher murder rate in Baltimore than we do in other parts of the country, one of the reasons it's not higher is probably because we do have very good health care facilities, particularly the shock trauma facility in places like the University of Maryland. That's a real thing, right? So you're going to still see bad reviews for them, but you're going to get a different type of bad review than others. So I always encourage providers or patients to look up their providers because outside of emergency care, usually you're going to a provider of your choice. And usually you can get an idea of what people experience when they see their doctor. And even though you'll see a lot of negative reviews, you do see good ones as well. Like, oh, you know, Dr. Murphy, he took the time to thoroughly explain everything to me. He listened to my concerns. He sat down with us. He kept asking, do you have any other questions? Is there anything else you're concerned about? He took a full history. Things like that matter a lot to patients. And that's where I'm going to piggyback up off of what the doctor said a moment ago, I think the other two things I would recommend other than looking up your doctors beforehand are, one, ask a lot of questions because, and don't do it just to be difficult, but ask questions for two reasons. One, you as a patient have a right to know everything that's going on with your health care, right? You have a legal right to know everything that's going on, all the discussions that are being had. But two, I have found that when I ask questions in a medical setting, you often get an idea of how much your doctor cares, right? Some doctors will take the time to say, well, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me look into it. Other doctors will just say, or nurses will say, no, no, you, that's not a problem, don't worry about it, right? And you kind of get that. Again, same thing that you get in other professional settings. I see other lawyers do that, which is why it's important for me to take the time to explain things to people. But it's, there's something reassuring about having someone listen to a concern you raise, take the time to say, I know the answer to this, this is what I think, or say, I don't know the answer, give me some time, or we don't know the answer because scientific knowledge is not at that point yet. Exactly. And that, so that's something that I think is important as well. And then the last piece is something the doctor said as well, which is because I like being inundated with information, I tend to overshare with my medical providers. But I think that's good. I've always told by my doctors I'm a good historian, both for me, for myself and my kids. But I think it's important because one thing I've seen being an attorney who does these types of cases is certain types of little information that we might think nothing of are actually very important. So something like a really severe headache, you know, a lot of people just get migraines regularly. Well, a run-of-the-mill migraine is very different than a severe headache that you've never experienced before. But people are just like, well, it's just a migraine. So I tend to overshare, and I encourage people to do that as well, because one, it is protected. Your doctor's not going to share that with anybody. And two, even if you are concerned about being a little embarrassed, that's the person you want to be embarrassed with because you want to make sure that they have the information they need to make sure you're getting the best care possible. So those are the three things I always recommend to people, because I do get that question a lot. When I'm at barbecues and stuff, well, well, since you're a malpractice attorney, what do you recommend? I'm like, look, research your doctors if it's somebody you have the, the ability to choose. Two, ask a lot of questions. And three, give as much information as possible. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, I always appreciate everyone's advice. And one of the points of this podcast is to gather all of this advice for the patients that are listening. And even for 
someone who isn't a patient because you never know when they need the patient. It's always um, something great to know. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you both so much. At this time, I'd like to open it up for some questions that I have from some of our students. So maybe one or two. So the first one we have is, what precautions and policies are in place to prevent certain malpractice cases? How are people or institutions who are carrying out malpractice procedures snuffed out? How are they uncovered and what is done after? So can you guys run us through, like you can run us through like a little bit of like what you would run like a patient consult like at a hospital and what your process would look like and then if a case were to come to you, what your process looks like. So I think in general, most hospitals have legit policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. Like you can log into policy stat and see like, okay, in this situation, how are you going to handle this you know, how does the nurse draw up this particular medication, confirm it if it's a narcotic, and, and sign it off. So we have very particular things that you're going to follow. From a medical care that you're giving, there's certainly the standard of care. But within that standard of care, you can find an article to support doing things, you know, in one way. You can support an article that says you can do the other way. And that's all acceptable because some things are just not black and white. There's a lot of a lot of gray, as long as you hit kind of the, the key points. So somebody comes in with chest pain, for example, right? Everybody thinks you're having a heart attack. Yeah. You should give aspirin. It's the one medication that is proven to decrease morbidity and mortality. There's mm -hmm. a number needed to treat of about nine, which means I give aspirin to nine people. One of those people, I stopped from dying, um, which is wonderful, mm -hmm. right? But the differential for chest pain is very wide, right? The other big thing could be aortic dissection. You don't want to give a blood thinner to somebody whose aorta is about to explode. It's not a good, not a good idea. Um, so if I treated every single person who came through the door with aspirin, I aortic dissection is much more rare in you know, the population that I deal with. But I have to take into account the rest of their history. So maybe I delay the aspirin administration until after I get the CT scan. And I document it beautifully that that's the reason why <laughs> yeah. I didn't give aspirin up front. But that would be something where it's... I'm not necessarily following the chest pain algorithm standard yeah. of care because I had another differential where my actions could, could hurt. Mm -hmm. So we took care of the patient. They did wonderfully. Let's say we gave them the wrong medication mm -hmm. by accident, right? And they're doing well. They had their cath because they did have a you know, heart attack. They're up in the CCU. The biggest thing that we do from a physician standpoint is we let them know. Or we let their caregiver know, you know, they're interviewed, like, hey, this unfortunately happened. We, um, you know, communicate the risks, the benefits. We have a system called Unsafe at university where it's even linked in the patient's chart. You click the button, it has all the patient demographics, and it goes to our patient quality safety improvement committee. Mm -hmm. They have, uh, they practice just culture, so they're not going to come and, like, jump down your throat and fire you for doing this mistake. They're going to take a look at the entire system and say, how did this error occur? And how can we prevent it from occurring again? And they often have root cause analysis meetings to kind of get to exactly the bottom. What things can we change in the emergency department? Perhaps the medication was in the wrong drawer in the pixis, or perhaps everybody was so busy that there was no second person to confirm, you know, that that was the actual dose that was given. Um, and then we kind of close the loop from an RCA standpoint and feed it back, you know, if the error occurred in the emergency department or if it occurred up on the floor, um, and then hopefully improve from there so it doesn't happen again. 
Yeah, and so just to piggyback off that before I talk a little bit about what my process is getting in a case is when we litigate these cases, once this, the lawsuit is filed, we are entitled to conduct discovery, right? We send questions, requests for documents, requests for electronically stored information to the hospital or the physician's practice group, and likewise, they get to send requests for things to our client. But one of the first things we ask for are those policies that the doctor referenced, right? Mm -hmm. The internal policies on how do you manage patients with this presentation. And one thing I have found is in a large number of the cases that we pursue, when we get those policies, the providers have violated their own internal policies, right? And in the cases where that happens, they don't usually have the type of justification the doctors talk about where they say, well, I saw this situation, I looked at the you know, cardiac algorithm in our policy and I saw chest pain aspirin, right? They don't say, oh, well, I thought there could be an issue with the aorta, right? They just say, oh, well, the policies are just guidelines. We don't really need to follow them. And rather than just accepting and saying, I violated this, but there was a clinical basis, it's, well, we don't need to follow our own policies, right? To some extent, they have to take that position, but I think it's important to the point the doctor made that when the policies are followed, more often than not, there's good care rendered, and that's where you have evidence. And the hospital will say, we followed our policies. These policies are based on evidence-based literature, right, that's been conducted over a set period of time. We know that this was good medicine, right? Versus someone saying, well, yeah, our policies, which we want everyone to follow and are good and everyone else follows, this one time they weren't followed, you know, well, that's okay. So that's just something I want to piggyback off of because the hospitals do maintain very comprehensive policies that I think medicine is not a cookbook, so it can't be followed like you just look at the policy and that's the answer. But I do find that in a large number of these cases, when I get my hands on the policies, the providers who we've sued have violated their own policies, and usually the violations are the things we allege they did wrong in the first place, right? So that's an important part of that. My own internal policy when I get a case sent to me is we get the case, we will do an intake, we'll speak with the client, discuss with them, get a very thorough background, history, you know, basically conduct our own mini deposition of the client. And from there, we will send out medical record requests. Patients are entitled to access to all of their protected health information under federal law. And that includes everything. So it includes what's in the traditional medical record. We still think of medical records as being like pieces of paper that people yeah. write on. But the reality is it's very comprehensive body of electronically stored information that includes not only notations with histories and physicals and assessments and plans, but it includes best practice alerts, which was something I think the doctor referred to earlier, prompts that say, this patient has these clinical findings, consider sepsis protocol, right? Things like that. Yeah, or vital signs and vital sign, you know, vital sign X is elevated. Consider looking into this situation. So there's all kinds of things that come with that. There's also, and this is something the doctor referenced a little bit earlier as well. There's, we now have something referred to as audit data. So federal law requires that healthcare systems employ software that not only keeps the patient's medical records stored for a set period of time, but also keeps track of any and all changes made to a patient's electronic medical record. So we will often find evidence that a physician enters a note, something bad happens, and they go back and change the note. And there has to be an electronic recording of that, right? So we ask for those things up front. We don't always get them up front. We understand we're not going to get them up front. We have to often ask for them in the discovery period. But before we file the lawsuit, we ask for all the records, not only from the provider who we think may be negligent, but from any provider within any reasonable period of time. So if we have somebody that comes in that was 70, has a history of smoking and joint problems, and suffers a pulmonary embolism, 
we're not going to ask for everything back to the time that she was 18, but we are probably going to ask for about five to 10 years of records to make sure that we have a full understanding. Was it normal for her to feel chest pain? Was it normal for her to get shortness of breath? Or was this a first time thing that she reported to her physician, her nurse on the day of the surgery when she died from a pulmonary embolism, right? Because those are two things that are considered red flags for pulmonary embolism, right? So that's an example. Once we get those records in, we will put together as the attorney a very comprehensive medical timeline to get an idea of what happened, when it happened, who it happened with, after that, if we think that we see something that may justify pursuit, we next send it to expert witnesses, right? So because of the complex nature of medical malpractice litigation, I can't just file a lawsuit and say, well, the doctor did something wrong. I need to have expert support from another doctor who's board certified in the same field as the doctor we are alleging or the nurse we're alleging did something wrong to say, yes, the standard of care requires that you do A, B, and C. The doctor did A but failed to do B and C. Therefore, he or she violated the standard of care and that was the cause of the patient's injuries. So the first person we usually send it to is a standard of care expert, someone who will tell us if there was a mistake. If we get support, positive support from them, we move on to start uh, retaining causation experts, right? So in, I've worked on pediatric, emergency pediatric cases before, so first person I send it to is an emergency pediatrician, right, emergency care pediatrician. If he or she says, yes, this was a violation of the standard of care, Next thing I'll do, if it's an injury that involves a brain injury, I send it to a neuroradiologist. He or she will say, yes, this is consistent with an injury occurring at or around the time of the emergency care visit, and it's consistent with a hypoxic ischemic injury, an embolic injury. From there, then I'll engage a neurologist who can put together the clinical picture. The neuroradiologist is the person who looks at the films and can say what they're seeing on the films correlates with a certain set of differential diagnoses, right? It could be A, B, or C. I defer to clinicians to say what it is. Then we'll engage a neurologist who'll put the picture together a little more. We might engage a neonatologist if it's a young enough child. Um, we'll often engage, I'm trying to think of some other experts, we'll engage vocational experts to tell us if this is an injury that will affect this person's ability to work in the future. We will engage um, life care planners um, who are professionals who essentially coordinate care for people who have catastrophic injuries. And they will just say, they listen to what the medical experts are saying and the treating doctors about this is the care that this patient will need in his or her future. And they basically monetize and say, this is what this is going to cost in this region. These are the services. These are what people charge. Um, so we go through that whole process. Once we have all those people on board, only then do we file a lawsuit and say, okay, now we have support for every element of the case. Um, and when I say we, I'm obviously talking about me personally. Not every lawyer necessarily yeah. does this the same way. But I want to make sure we have support for every single element of the process before we file a lawsuit to make sure that we aren't going to file a lawsuit that's going to get thrown because there's a link in the chain that's going to break because there isn't sufficient evidence to support that claim, right? So we go through that whole process. That process takes anywhere from six months to a year before we file the lawsuit. So a lot of times our patients, honest, you know, understandably and honestly get upset because they say, well, look, you know, this happened two years before I, contact, yeah, before I contacted you, right? And I'm just sitting here waiting. <clears throat> But we often tell them that that's, it's better to take that approach than to put something into suit just to have it thrown out early, right? It's better to make sure we can have all of our ducks in a row. Exactly, yeah. So it is a long process. It's longer than in other types of litigation. And when I did divorce stuff, somebody would come to our office and they would say, uh, you know, I'm dissatisfied. My marriage is broken down. We'd like to, you know, I'd like to file for divorce. It would take a week or two, right? I mean, we'd just be getting the papers together and getting their personal information. Same with car accidents. Usually it's just a matter of, you know, somebody's been in an accident, you have evidence that they were rear-ended, you have evidence that someone ran a stoplight, you just file, right? Um, there's much less investigation. Our process requires a much longer and much more involved 
investigation analysis, and that requires us to oftentimes spend money to contact these experts, get their opinions, to request all the medical records, and oftentimes we do all that and we realize at the end of the day there isn't anything to pursue, and you know, the patient doesn't pay us back for that, that's just out of our pocket, but we want to make sure we're doing a very thorough investigation before we take that, that deep dive into the litigation process. Thank you for explaining what's doing. Yeah, no problem. Do one more question. What do you think needs to change to reduce the instances of medical malpractice? Either of you can jump in. I think people's understanding of the healthcare system on all aspects. Right. So if a patient comes to the emergency department the way that emergency medicine is working right now in Maryland, there is going to be a long wait. And I apologize for that long wait. Um, <laughs> it's not because we're sitting in the back having, you know, a party yeah. or anything like that. Um, but there's a lot of kind of pieces of the medical system that are currently broken and need to kind of get put back together. And it will be a slow and long process. Um, so if people have patience from that standpoint, but the clinicians also have to understand that, okay, we can tell a person to follow up with their primary care doctor in two days. That doesn't happen. We would love it to happen. But the primary care system is just as overwhelmed as the emergency system. And so sometimes there are other ways that aren't necessarily what we used to do in the past when we had a wonderfully, you know, functioning system <laughs> that went through, like maybe telemedicine or maybe just sending a note in the chart to your primary care doctor and say like, hey, I was in the ED, my blood pressure was this, what do you think? Or, you know, I need a refill on my diabetes medicines, can you do it? Um, and there's the whole medication, uh, yeah, obtaining a medication problem. system that is also broken in the cost. Uh, so I think... The big thing is if we approach it together, we can normally find a reasonable solution per patient, and it takes more effort on everybody's part to do it. I think if we slow down, take our time, not necessarily worry about other patients in that moment that we are with one particular patient, I think that helps. It may not be the best for the system or the people in the waiting room, but trying to devote all your attention and take care of that patient in a comprehensive manner, I think will help that patient, and then you can move on and do the same for the next patient. It just takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to echo some things that the doctor said and that I said earlier. I think a big part of that, and this is a chicken or the egg conversation, yeah. is how much of that is driven by the current model of insurance healthcare reimbursement we have, because I do think a big part of the problem that I see is I'm seeing a very small sample size, but I find that physicians who have the ability to be more selective about the patients they work with, to take on less patients, to make sure that they can devote their full attention to their patients, like the doctor's describing, those people do not seem to be subject to malpractice suits very often. And they also seem to have really good reviews, because there are, believe it or not, some doctors who I look up, because I look up doctors for myself, for my kids, who have wonderful reviews, and I think a big part of it is allows them to be more selective. Now, maybe that's because they can it allows them to make sure they're getting reimbursed at the right rates and for the quality services they're getting. But I do think a big part of the problem is that the way that healthcare works in the United States, insurance carriers are reimbursing at a certain rate depending on who their carrier is. If you're on public assistance, it's a lower rate. And it requires that in order to make sure you are maximizing your uh, economic efficiencies as a healthcare provider, which shouldn't be a concern, that you are getting in and through as many patients as quickly as possible. 
I don't think that most doctors want to do that, but I think they get pushed into that system. And unless you have doctors who are conscientious enough to say, you know, my first obligation is to my patient, just like I, as a lawyer, my first obligation is to my client, not to how much money my bosses may want to make, but to make sure that I'm devoting my time and being selective in the cases I take. That the same is true in the healthcare field, but because of the way they're compensated, it just makes things more difficult. So I think that's a big part of it. And I, this is something I alluded to earlier, and I think the doctor alluded to as well. I think that part of what needs to change is, this is societal, this isn't me being unfair to the healthcare field, I don't think. I would say the same thing about a lot of my colleagues in legal practices. I think that our, our modern economy in some ways creates a sense of apathy in the people we deal with in our professional settings, right? And it's whether you are a professional, using the definition I gave earlier, or you're just somebody that maybe isn't professionally certified. And I think that there's a growing sense of apathy in the way we interact with people, particularly in professional or business situations. It takes away from our recognition of the fact, hey, this is a patient who I owe an ethical obligation to. Hey, this is a client who I owe an ethical obligation to as a yeah. lawyer. And I think that if we can move away from those things uh, to some extent, I think that would help improve our healthcare system. And from my perspective, I obviously have a dearth of information myself, even as a lawyer who does this. But from my perspective, those are what I think are the two things that can help us move more and more away from the rates of medical malpractice we have now because there was a, a recent study that I think was published in like US News and World Report that now medical errors are considered like the third leading cause of death in the United States. You know, how much of that is accurate because all data gets skewed in one way or another and how much of that is just a reflection of the fact that we're all coming into contact more and more with healthcare services than we used to. You know, I'm sure there's a debate about that, but it is a growing phenomena and I think a lot of it's being driven by those those two things, at least from my perspective. Before we close off, I want to give you both another big thank you for attending. So thank you both. Um, I can confidently say that I have learned a lot and appreciate your advice and hope that the listeners feel the same way. And with that, this is the end of this episode. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming.